Thanks for downloading the UCD Humanities Institute podcast. This podcast series features recordings of lectures, seminars and events hosted by or associated with the University College Dublin Humanities Institute. For more information, go to www.ucd.ie forward slash humanities. In this episode, a recording from Law and Revolution in Ireland, Law and Lawyers Before, During and After the Cromwellian Interregnum. This conference took place in the House of Lords on the 27th and 28th of November 2014. It was organised by Dr Coleman Dennehy in association with the Irish Legal History Society and generously supported by the Society, the Bank of Ireland, UCD Humanities Institute, University College London Department of History and UCD School of History and Archives. The event was recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media. This episode features a paper from Session 3 entitled Governing Restoration Ireland. The Evidence of the Proclamations, 1660-1670. The paper was given by Professor James Maguire of the Irish Manuscripts Commission. Earlier this year, the Irish Manuscripts Commission published in five volumes the Proclamations of Ireland, 1660-1820, edited by James Kelly with Marion Lyons. This monumental edition contains in all 2,414 proclamations, declarations and orders. The vast majority of them Uh, issued by the Irish executive and must surely be regarded as a major contribution to the history of the governance of Ireland over 160 years. Prior to its its destruction in 1922, the Public Record Office of Ireland contained what Robert Steele, the editor of the Bibliography of Royal Proclamations of the Tudor and Stuart Sovereigns, what he described as, quote, a fine series of printed proclamations bound in 17 volumes besides a number preserved in cartons, unquote. Fortunately, Steele had lived, had listed and summarised the collection so that even when most of it was destroyed in 1922, a reliable listing of proclamations was still available to scholars. And, of course, the Public Record of Ireland was not the sole repository of proclamations, even if it held the most comprehensive collection. From that base, and using the short title catalogues, James Kelly, with Professor Lyons, assembled from a large number of libraries and archives copies of all the extant proclamations and declarations issued by authority between the restoration of the monarchy in 1660 and the death of George III in 1820. These make up the bulk of this impressive edition, where each proclamation is published in chronological sequence and in full. And where proclamations are no longer extant or have not been found, the editors have drawn on Steele's bibliography to provide a summary of each of the new, now lost proclamations printed in its appropriate chronological place in the edition. So even if we don't have the original, we have the summary version and it it comes in the right chronological sequence. In his introduction to the proclamations of Ireland, 1660-1820, James Kelly makes the point that the proclamations illuminate a host of processes, procedures, issues and subject matters. Like the statutes, parliamentary journals and blue books, the proclamations are, and I quote directly from him, quote, a crucial building block for the construction of a full and proper understanding of the pattern of government, for the identification of those who gave it shape, and an important evidential source for the social, economic, political, fiscal, security and military problems, issues and concerns that demanded the attention of government. 
Browsing the proclamations for the first decade of Charles II's reign, 1660 to 1669, I was struck by Professor Kelly's reference to the identification of those who gave it, that is, government, shape, as well as the range of issues that proclamations engaged with. And what follows now is no more than my um, inchoate musings on what proclamations can tell us about some individuals, government, privy council and law, especially now that we are fortunate enough to have what amounts to a definitive collection of the proclamations of Charles II and indeed of the, of the late early modern period. Now, Volume 1 covers Charles II's reign and therefore uh, goes from 1660 to the beginning of 1685. And it contains 309 proclamations, declarations and orders. Of these, 191 cover the period from May 1660 to November 1669, the decade I've chosen for treatment. While most of these 191 documents are proclamations or declarations of one sort or another issued by the, by the, Charles, by the King's Irish administration or executive, 24 of them are not. Two are declarations issued by the Irish Convention in 1660, six by the King and his English Privy Council at London in Whitehall, ten by the Irish Parliament, three by the Commissioners for implementing the King's Declaration of the 30th of November 1660, and two by the Commissioners appointed under the 1662 Act of Settlement. The editor's decision to include these uh, declarations, even though not issued by government, is, I believe, entirely reasonable, since they are as much part of government mental restoration process in the 1660s as the proclamations issued by Irish administration. But, that said, my focus here is exclusively on the proclamations and declarations issued by the Irish executive in the 1660s, and in particular on what they can tell us about Privy Council membership and attendance. So I've rather excluded the, um, that, that particular number uh, from the 24 from my treatment, from my consideration. The first such governmental or executive declaration was in fact issued on the 24th of September 1660, not by Lords Justices, because they hadn't yet been appointed, the new governmental system hadn't been formally restored, but by the Commissioners for Government and the Management of Affairs in Ireland, who, that they who had charge of government in Ireland pending the former restoration of the traditional institutions of royal government, which took effect with the swearing-in of Lords Justices on the 31st of December 1660. Thereafter, 166 proclamations were issued by the King's administration between the 2nd of January 1661 and the end of November 1669, of which 39 were in the name of the Chief Governor or Chief Governors only, that is, either Lord Lieutenant, Lord Deputy, or when there was no chief single person, Lords Justices. There was a, and 127 proclamations which were issued in the name of the Chief Governor and Council, with the names, the name or names of the Chief Governors at the top of the document and the names of Council members at the end of the proclamation. Whether members of the Council signed their names to the proclamation or had their names included by a clerk, on the basis of their presence when the proclamation was approved, is not clear. So the latter seems more likely, possibly anyway, if variations in the spelling of Privy Councillors' names is taken into account. It's more likely that you will sign yourself the same way, and there are variations in the way various Privy Councillors' names appear over the years. That also applies to bishops. The number of Councillors' names varied considerably. 
Sometimes as few as five names appeared at the end of a proclamation, though as many as 22 names could be appended when, for example, the Duke of Ormond was presiding, especially in the early stages of his Viceroyalty, when perhaps councillors were more keen to turn up. And of course it seems entirely reasonable to infer that signatories were indeed present when the proclamation that was being promulgated was actually approved. Taking into account the destruction of the 17th century council records in the fire at the Surveyor General's office in Essex Street in April 1711, the names at the end of proclamations were seen to constitute a potentially reliable source for attendance at council meetings. Though a big caveat has to be entered, and I give it to you. Just take one example. On the 15th of August 1666, four proclamations were issued on the same date by Ormond, but of the 18 privy councillors whose names appear on one or more of the four proclamations, only three are on all four, Bishop Henry Jones of Meath, Sir Paul Davis, and the ever-conscientious James Ware are there, Six are on one only, six are on two proclamations, and three are only on one. Now, these figures might suggest an all-day session with members of the Privy Council coming and going, or a decision to issue four proclamations approved on different dates but on the same day. But they certainly don't look like proof, if you like, of attendance on the 15th of August one way or the other, unless, I said, it was a long meeting and a pretty fluid attendance. Between 1660 and 1669, the names of 57 Privy Councillors appear on one or more of the 127 proclamations carrying signatures of Privy Council members. If, despite the reservations created by the four proclamations of the 15th of August 1666, we take the number of times a name appears as corresponding with attendance, we can see a very clear distinction between those among the 57 who attended regularly, those who attended moderately, and those who attended minimally. The latter might include those who attended 10 or fewer meetings, though it should not include those whose appointments were made close to the end of the decade I'm treating, or who died within a year or two of appointment. In the former category, Sir George Carteret, who seems to have been appointed in 1668, or Edward Herbert, Baron Herbert, who was appointed in August 1669. Obviously, their attendance record couldn't be very high because there were only one or two council meetings or proclamations issued that period. In the latter category, however, would be Viscount Falkland, who those who died, who was appointed in July 1662, whose name appears in two proclamations and who died in 1663. John Barclay, on the other hand, president of Connaught, who was appointed to the council in 1661, attended only once in the 1660s. Likewise, the name of Thomas Clarges, brother-in-law of the Duke of Albemarle, who was appointed in 1663, appears only five proclamations, as he seems only to have been in Ireland when his landed interests required it. Likewise, Richard Barry, Earl of Barrymore, attended on only five occasions throughout the 1660s. In the middle rank, ranks of attendees are the Duke of Ormond's uh, two sons, Thomas, Earl of Ossery, and Richard, Earl of Arran. Ossery, of course, acted in his father's absence on two occasions as Lord Deputy as well. But I'm talking about him now in his role as a member of the Privy Council rather than as Chief Governor. Ossery's name appears on 21 proclamations, apart, as I said, from those where his name appears when he served as Lord Deputy in his father's absence in 1664-5 and 1668-9. His brother Arran appears on 22 proclamations from 1663 to the end of the decade. Arthur Ansley, Earl of Anglesey, Vice-Treasurer of Ireland in 1667, 
and who held high office in England at the same time, had a respectable attendance record of 33 meetings, but all of them tied in with Ormond's presence in Ireland. And I note that other great uh, political of the early 1660s, Sir John Plotworthy, Viscount Mazarin, managed 24 meetings before his death in 1665. But if names and proclamations indicate attendance, and a frequent attendance identifies those who gave shape to Irish governance in the 1660s, which of course it may only do, it may only do to an extent, then 13 members of council stand out from the others as having attendance rates away above the average. In most cases, higher than usual attendance may betoken influence, though in some cases, of course, it may point, it may point to make weights at council meetings. Most of the high scorers were anything, to, were anything, to, to, were anything but make weights. For example, John Bramhall, Archbishop of Armagh, uh, before his sudden death in June 1663, had managed 36 meetings. Michael Boyle, Bishop of Cork, a great political operator, up to 1663, and then Archbishop of Dublin from 1663 and Lord Chancellor from 1665. Boyle accumulated 53 proclamations, or uh, at least his name is on 53 proclamations, which on my reckoning might count as 53 meetings. And his statistic would undoubtedly have been higher had he not been absent in London as agent of the Lord's Justices from August 1661 to April 1662 during the arrangements of the land settlement. The Lord Chancellor, Maurice Eustace, who died in 1665, signed 44 proclamations as a Lord Justice and a further 22 as a member of council, giving him a grand total of 66 proclamations stroke meetings. Sir Paul Davis, who recovered his office of clerk of the council after the Restoration, received in May 1661 a reversion of the office of Secretary of State and was appointed to the council in August, when presumably he stopped being its clerk. Henry Jones, on his translation in 1661 to the Bishopric of Meath, um, which invariably carried with it a seat on the Privy Council, clocked up 49 meeting-stroke proclamations. But he was beaten by his brother Theophilus, who was appointed to the council in 1660 and had his name on 57 proclamations by the end of the decade. Both of those were great and very significant figures in the whole restoration of the monarchy in 1660. The master of the rolls, Sir John Temple, who served under the protectors and went on to play an influential role in events leading up to the restoration, went on being an influential presence, appearing on 51 proclamations in the 1660s. But with Temple's associate from pro-Parliament politics in the 1640s, at the beginning of the English Civil War, Sir Robert Meredith, a supporter of Cromwell in the 1650s and Chancellor of the Exchequer in the 1660s, it was he who made the second highest tally with 70 signed proclamations up to his death in 1668. He is clearly worth investigating further and seems to deserve the attention he has not yet been given, perhaps that ultimate accolade of an entry in the DIB. But um, anyway, I'm no longer responsible for that, but I suggest it. But this could not be said for Sir Robert Forth, a landowner in County Cavan, MP for Kilbegan in 1640 and for County Meath in 1661 who was appointed to the council in December 1660 and whose career suggests a make way despite his name appearing on 60 proclamations, the third highest tally. The same may be true, if not to the same extent, of James Margotson, appointed Archbishop of Dublin in 1660 and from 1663 Archbishop of Armagh, 
whose name appears in our 88 petitions more than any other member of the Council. A Norman loyalist, Margaret's abiding concern was the best interest of the Church, and he does not in any sense appear as a major political force in the way that his Episcopal colleague, Michael Boyle, undoubtedly was. I've talked to Aidan Clark beforehand, and I mentioned this, and Aidan said the possibility that Margaretson also liked being around Dublin and not going back to his diocese, which could have been a factor as well, possibly. It is perhaps worth reflecting that the Privy Council of the early 1660s had more Episcopal members than any of his successors. In addition to the Archbishops of Armagh, Bramhall, and Dublin, Margaretson, and the Bishop of Meath, Henry Jones from 1661, all three effectively ex officio members of council, there were three other bishops sitting on council in the first three years immediately following the Restoration, as I've mentioned. Michael Boyle, while still Bishop of Cork, and the Bishop of Cork was not usually a member of council. John Leslie, Bishop of Raffoe, who is even less likely to be a member of council, and who was then promoted to Clogher in 1601. And Jeremy Taylor, Bishop of Down and Connor. So there you had six bishops sitting in the early 1660s as members of the Privy Council. In 1661-3, the Episcopate was better represented than the legal profession, which seems surprising considering the quasi-legal stroke legislative functions which the Council possessed. Principal among the lawyers on the Council in the first half of the 1660s was Sir Maurice Eustace, who, as I earlier mentioned, had an almost uninterrupted attendance record between January 1661 and April 1665, two months before his death, first in his capacity as Lord Justice and then as a Council member. Unlike Michael Boyle, his successor as Chancellor, Eustace was a professional lawyer who had received his legal education at Lincoln's Inn in the 1620s, had served as Prime Sergeant in the 1630s, and had built up a private practice during the interregnum. John Temple, the Master of the Rolls, seems to have never to have been called to the bar, though he studied at Lincoln's Inn in the early 1620s. John Biss, another alumnus of Lincoln's Inn, who had supported the Cromwell government in the 1650s, was appointed Chief Baron of the Exchequer after the Restoration. With the support of the Duke of Ormond, he retained this position for the remainder of his life, while also serving as Justice of Assize for Leinster. He became a member of the Privy Council on the 1st of January 1661, and served on a series of commissions on the land settlement in the 1660s, and on the Royal Revenue in Ireland in the 1670s. Clearly to be accounted among the influential, Biss's name appears on 38 proclamations in the 1660s. Even more influential at the Restoration was the chairman of the Dublin Convention of 1660, James Barry, another alumnus of King Lincoln's Inn, who had been Prime Sergeant in the early 1630s and closely associated with the administration of Lord Deputy Wentworth. In 1661, he was appointed to the Privy Council, and as Lord Chief Justice of King's Bench, he was ennobled as Baron Barry of Santry, and his name appears on 34 proclamations in the 1660s. The two other professional lawyers to serve in the Privy Council were James Donnellan and Edward Smith. Donnellan, whose name appears on 16 proclamations between January 1661 and his death in 1665, had been, like most of his fellow lawyers on the council, educated at Lincoln's Inn yet again. In the 1640s, he had supported Ormond's administration, though he was never entirely trusted, and in the 1650s, his career had prospered under the Commonwealth and Protectorate. At the Restoration, he was made Chief Justice of the Common Pleas. His name appears for the last time in a proclamation in May 1663, two years before he died. 
He was replaced as Chief Justice of Common Pleas and on the Privy Council by Edward Smith, the only lawyer on the council not to have received his legal education at Lincoln's Inn. A student at Middle Temple, where he was called to the bar in 1635, Smith's Irish career followed the Restoration. His poor, record, poor attendance record at council, his name appears on only seven proclamations, suggests a weariness with Irish business, which culminated in his resignation from the bench in 1669 and his return to England, where he lived for another decade in retirement in his country house in Buckinghamshire. In a council which encompassed cumulatively 57 members across the 1660s, the five lawyers represented, surprisingly, a tiny proportion of the whole. The lawyers who sat on the Privy Council were all senior office holders on the bench, and their appointments of the council rose from the positions they held. We can assume that they gave the benefit of their wisdom at council debates and helped shape the proclamations to which they added their names, though we get no clues from the proclamations themselves as to their drafting and the legal opinions which shaped them. In Charles II's reign, and for many years thereafter, neither the Attorney-General nor the Solicitor-General were members of the Council. The appointment of the Attorney-General to the Council in a later, is a later 18th century phenomenon. For example, John Scott in the late 70s, 1770s, Barry Elverton's early 1780s, John Fitzgibbon thereafter, and Arthur Wolfe throughout the 1790s. But my guess would be that William Donville would indeed have been in attendance at Council meetings in the 1660s, and probably the Solicitor-General, Sir John Temple, Jr., who in the late 1670s would play a major part in drafting bills for the intended Parliament that never was summoned, must also surely have been, I suspect, a regular attender, but in attendance, not attending as a member of the Council. So now, in this paper, I've sought to draw some tentative conclusions about membership and attendance by focusing on 127 proclamations from the 1660s issued in the name of the Chief Governor and Council, which carried at the bottom the names of Privy Council members. There were then 39 other proclamations issued solely in the name of the Chief Governor, a practice replicated right across the 18th century. As James Kelly points out in his general introduction, these proclamations were usually concerned with the routine and the formulaic, and this certainly holds good for the 1660s. 24 of them, for example, extended the prorogation of Parliament, 10 concerned army leave or discipline, while five others had largely administered for procedural purposes, such as petitioning the Lord Lieutenant or making an order under existing legislation. Many of the proclamations issued by Chief Governor and Council were likewise grounded in or took their authority from legislation, the preambles often used in the formula, quote, whereas by an act passed, etc. In other instances, the Chief Governor and Council acted on the basis of law, but unspecified law. Many of the proclamations arose from the Acts of Settlement and Explanation, usually bringing into force certain provisors. Some might be seen as enacting council law, uh, as in the proclamation the 5th of August 1663, some months after the blood plot was uncovered, concerning the restitution to owners of arms lately seized and the terms applying to such restitution which inter alia imposed an early, an early form, this proclamation did I find interesting, an early form of sacramental test. The subject seeking restitution of arms must produce a certificate that he did, quote, receive the blessed sacrament of the communion according to the form prescribed by the Church of Ireland. 
that is the forerunner of the, um, obviously the Test Acts in England of the 1670s and the Irish Act to prevent the further growth of Popery of 1703, where I think is the first legislative um, enactment by Parliament. Of course, sitting on council and its attendant labours brought with it um, suitable recompense. And I'll just quote this from you and end up on this point. Uh, as a proclamation issued by Ormond and 12 councillors on the 14th of November 1662 may explain. It's a proclamation for the more due and orderly preservation of His Majesty's game of pheasants, partridges, um, grouse and hares, and all other game whatsoever, for the recreation of the Lord Lieutenant and Council, especially near about the places where the Lord Lieutenant and State shall for the most part reside, and we do hereby in his majesty's name strictly charge and command all persons whatsoever that they do not presume to kill or take or attempt to kill or take any pheasant, partridge, grows, hares or any prohibited game whatsoever either by hawks, nets, guns, setting dogs, greyhounds or any other engine whatsoever in any place or places within seven miles from the city of Dublin as also within the bounds of the Curragh of Kildare or within three miles distance from the same except only councillors of state may take their recreation with hawks or otherwise within the said limits. That was a case of looking after yourself very nicely and nobody, of course, would dare criticise. Final point, and it's just you may find it some, um, I found this quite interesting, uh, on the looking um, um, at the website of the Department of Public Expenditure and Reform, if you go there to the Statute Law Revision Programme, you will find that they have listed um, all this sort of secondary legislation which they are planning uh, to um, repeal are insofar as it needs revocation. As they put it themselves, the first, the statute law revision bill 2000 will revoke all secondary instruments created up to and including 1820. And I looked at first Schedule 2, which contains all the ones to be removed, and it was very gratifying to see, in fact, that all, virtually every proclamation issued in Charles II's reign has been duly listed uh, and with, with the Irish Manuscripts condition uh, duly noted as source for, um, if you like, repeal by that particular uh, act. Uh, but I do notice mysteriously that two subject matters are marked down for possible retention, depending on they asked the public for their advice. Those should have been in by the 14th, 15th of October last month. But two of them was a proclamation of 1677, just outside the remit of what I've been doing today, a proclamation against illegal warrants by some sheriffs and justice of the peace that remain, omit to name the persons against whom they are granted. That is suggested should remain. And the other one is a proclamation of February 1685, just before Charles II, or news of Charles II's death reached Dublin, a proclamation authorising the Ulster King of Arms to prevent improper use of arms style or of esquire or gentleman, etc. <laughs> These are the two survivors from the reign of Charles II. And um, you have to go into Queen Anne's reign, I think, to find others. So anyway, thank you. <laughs> thank you, James. Thank you.